0: I am somewhat fascinated by uh, natural disasters, um, just the force and power that things in our world have, uh, even when they go wrong, the, the power that's on display and the ability for things to reshape our world, and uh, I'm really interested by one that's really kind of close to home to us. Actually, one of the largest, most powerful earthquakes in the continental United States happened in our kind of backyard, just down the river, down the Mississippi River, down by New Madrid, Missouri. Uh, Back 200 years ago, 1811 to 1812, there was a series of thousands of earthquakes that shook this area of the Mississippi River Valley. There were three major ones that... Estimated anywhere from seven to 8.6 on the Richter scale. They weren't able to accurately assess it at that time, as very not very populated area. Uh, but it was there were severe earthquakes. They were felt on the coasts. One of them uh, is said to have woken up Dolly Madison in the White House, and another one shook the bells, made church bells ring in Boston. One of them completely leveled the city of New Madrid. In Missouri. One of them caused the Mississippi to flow backwards. The upheaval in the valley was such that the water flowed backwards for hours. Islands that were in the middle of the river were then gone forever and new lakes were created out of adjusted geographical areas. Just complete destruction and and devastation it's really interesting to, to to look at something like that or other natural disasters, the Johnstown flood of 1889 or the giant Galveston hurricane of 1900 or even more recently like Mount St. Helens in 1980, we can see a lot more of that because of uh, more pictures, more recent technology. We can see what it was like beforehand and then see what it was like after. And we're looking here at... Uh, Genesis this morning and and a couple weeks ago we started off with the whole creation account and and we're thankful that we can see even after what we know the disaster of Genesis 3 of of this fall of man and the curse that is brought into the world we're thankful that we can still see some of the remnants of, of how God created the world to be what original life was supposed to be we can still see that there and we're thankful we can also go back and read What God wants us to know about what happened before this pivotal event in Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 shapes our life and the world that we live in almost as much as Genesis 1 and 2 do. What it was supposed to be and then what it now is because of this major disaster of sin and death and the curse coming into our world. So we want to look at that this morning. How has this changed our life what, what, what it was before, what it is now. Let's, let's pray about that. God, we come to your word knowing Genesis 3 is a sad story and especially feeling it sad this week, tasting of the specific bitter fruits of that. But God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we see it, that we would be able to learn from it, learn how to live this life in this broken world and have the hope that comes from knowing this is not the end of the story. I pray for that this morning, pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this morning, we want to look at at three specific things. We want to understand the, the seeds of sin that are on display here, because sin shapes how we live our life, and then understand the rest of the collateral damage, how this world has been adjusted forever, but then the seeds of hope that are embedded even in this text, Genesis 3. This is not the way that it's going to be forever. So let's start here uh, with the first look at what are the seeds of sin. We, uh, let's, let's start with verse 1, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any of any tree in the garden? Before we go on there, let's just address. The first thing here is this is the serpent. The serpent is the first character in this sad story, and and there's somewhat of maybe a a relief that this major thing didn't happen just because of man, but um, it started outside of human beings. It was brought to us by the serpent. Um, It's not necessarily a good thing, though, because whatever bad there is, humans jumped right on board. (laughs) Um, But the serpent is the critical character here the serpent and we understand from the rest of scripture this is identified as satan himself i don't think that's probably a surprise to, to many of you uh, growing up as an american christian the bible stories we know satan tempted adam and eve uh, but he's identified throughout scripture uh, especially revelation 29 we're told the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world. He's pictured as this serpent, also a bigger dragon throughout scripture. And there's kind of two different pictures of him there, the serpent, the crafty deceiver, and then the dragon who is the destroyer or the devourer. But right here, we're first of all pictured him as the the deceiver, the, the serpent. And how does he deceive? Right away, we're introduced to him, and right away there is this battle of words going on. He comes in to deceive with words, to challenge God's own words. We looked two weeks ago at Genesis 1 and 2 and how all of creation happened because of just God's words. And that is specifically where Satan is targeting his attack. He's challenging God's own words. Um, This comes from something that happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 3 is where sin meets man. But we understand there's something else that happened here behind the scenes where Satan himself had a battle of words and ideas and truth and lies. And that caused him to be uh, be the tempter here. It caused his own downfall so that Jesus, oh, it's said of him, sorry, in, not in Jesus' words, but in Isaiah chapter 14, You said in your own heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So whatever happened between the end of creation where God said everything is very good, at some point in time there, this created being, Lucifer, we understand his name is, had a battle of words and ideas in his own mind. And he said, rather than God saying, I am the most high, Satan said, I will be like the most high. And that separation, that that lack of contentment and satisfaction with what he was created to be caused this evil to come into God's created universe. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, but that started what we see here now in chapter three. There's Whatever happened between two and three Satan is bringing that now to Adam and Eve, this battle of words. Let's look to Adam and Eve as the characters. Now, first of all, Adam. Now, we understand most of the description here in chapter 3 is about Eve and what she does with the serpent, but in the rest of the, the Bible, in the New Testament especially, we're told that Adam is the one who carries the guilt of this sin. It is through one man that sin entered the world. So, Adam is is a somewhat of a passive character in this in this narrative, and, and that may be part of the problem. He was we looked at two weeks ago. He was created and given the responsibility of subduing the earth, of t- working the garden and keeping it. And that word "keep" is to protect. There was supposed to be a protection that he was keeping, but all of a sudden there's a tempter here. There's a, a, a serpent who is bringing a battle of words. And we are not told that Adam does anything about it. He does not stand up and keep the garden. He does not stand up and protect his wife. And we're not told what his motives are. Maybe there was a a, a temptation of there being a shortcut in the work that he was given. He was supposed to subdue the earth and bring the whole earth under completion, and then he would be uh, given the, the, maybe a promotion or a, a confirmation that he had done that well, and maybe this was a temptation. This is just a shortcut to, to do what he was created to do. Maybe that was part of the motive. We don't know. We are told later in the book, in verse 17, because you listen to your wife, that is why he is being judged, because he listened to his wife. He was created to be a receiver of revelation from God. But now he has listened to his wife, and he's allowed his wife to listen to the serpent. And so he has traded out a source of truth. And really what's pictured from the beginning here is kind of this age-old story. There's a dragon that's creeping into paradise, and the hero does not stand up and slay the dragon and save the damsel. He fails. He's passive. He steps back, and he just listens to the evil. That's a sad thing. But of course, the narrative here spoke, focuses specifically on Eve. So let's look here in verse two. The woman responds to what the serpent said. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall, not eat the, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. That same message he was telling himself, be like God. And again, here we see Eve listening to the serpent. Like Adam listened to his wife, Eve is listening to the serpent. Instead of listening to God as the source of revelation, she is now listening to a creature that she is supposed to be, by virtue of being a human, over this is not meant to be normal that the serpent is here talking. I don't think we're supposed to understand that as being normal, that an animal is talking. This isn't like Narnia talking beasts. The only other place in scripture, unless I'm mistaken, where an animal talks is Balaam's donkey. And, and he still engages with the donkey as if that would be normal. Uh, but Eve here, she should be, by virtue of being a human, a mankind, ruling over the serpent. But now she is listening and opening herself to its revelation. And it, first of all, causes doubt. Did God really say? Did God actually say? And the question here is so pervasive and well-crafted, it causes such a host of damage. He's challenging not just God's words, but the nature of God himself. What is God doing in creating all of this and then saying, you can't have that. He's exploiting this thing where where God created all of this stuff that is good, and at the same time, he told Adam and Eve, no, about one thing. There were limitations. They couldn't touch, they couldn't eat of that tree. And that represented other things like we talked about a couple weeks ago. There were other limitations. Adam and Eve had limitations built into creation. They couldn't live where they wanted to live. There's a distinction between heaven and earth and sky and, and land and land and water. There are distinctions. But the serpent comes in and says, "Did God say that that is he really holding back on you?" And he's creating this doubt as to God's character. I think it's really summed up really well in the Jesus Storybook Bible, written for kids, but this is a really good uh, paraphrase that that Satan is saying to Eve, does God really love you? If he does, why didn't he let you eat the nice juicy fruit? Poor you, perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. It's the temptation that we should not have any limitations put on us. We should have it all. If you've been listening to, watching TV at all recently, whether it's political or sports, you might have seen a commercial for the new merger between um, Sprint and T-Mobile, and they have this song playing announcing their grand new network, and the best 5G network. They have a song playing from Queen, I want it all. I want it all, and I want it now. You deserve to have no limitations when it comes to your wireless network. You should not settle for anything that holds you back. And that is what the serpent is offering to Adam and Eve. You should not have anything that limits you, that that holds you back. And He creates that doubt as to God's character, but then he offers a direct challenge. He says, you will not die. He doesn't just Bait them with, will you die? He is directly challenging God's word, you will not die. And he backs up with an alternate offer that God has given them. You should want it all. You should not settle. If it's something that you want and it's good, you should just reach out and take it. And by doing that, it's an act of calling ourselves God, saying, I believe that is good for me and I am going to be a better God than the God who is saying no to me. I'm just gonna reach out and take what I want. And he offers that your eyes will be opened. You will know good and evil. You will know good and evil without God having to teach you good and evil. You can know it right now. You don't have to wait for God to let you understand that over time, as was his plan. And not just know an evil, know good and evil, but you will have moral autonomy. You will understand it and be able to exercise your own understanding of good and evil. It boils down to his own fall. You will be like God. He wanted to be like God, and he offers at the core of every temptation, you deserve what you want, and you take it. You reach out and take what you think is best for you. So we read here in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a lot that can be said uh, just in those verses. There's parallels that people have, preachers and and theologians and authors have written about comparing those three statements uh, that she saw that it was delightful to the eyes, it was good for food, it was desire to make one wise, the parallels between that and the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and, and the three descriptions of temptation in 1 John chapter one, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and there's a lot to that. But I want to just boil it down to a few simple things here that we understand temptation to be. We are gonna compare it here first of all to Jesus' temptation, Jesus the second Adam, when he was living on earth, he was tempted in various ways. And he is called the second Adam because he responded to these temptations very differently than what we see here of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one. In the temptations in the wilderness, he is tempted by words again. He's not in the garden where he has everything that he could desire. He's in the wilderness, and he is offered just a basic necessity of food But he says, I don't need to listen to that. I will live by God's word alone. He continues to orient himself to listening to God and not to another voice. He doesn't need more than he already has. He is okay with being limited and not having everything his heart desires, whether it's bread or more awestruck disciples or having the kingdoms of the world without suffering. We see Jesus also being tempted by Peter later in Matthew. Peter offers him the idea that he could be the Messiah without having to suffer. And what does Jesus say to that? He exercises the authority that Adam should have had in saying to a rival source of truth. He says, get behind me, Satan. He acts with authority, and he continues to orient himself to God's truth and not another source of truth, not another voice. Same with the temptation that he has in Gethsemane. And he says rather than whatever temptation of thought where he could bring about God's will without suffering, he says, but not my will, but yours. He is not content. He is not driven by his own desires to have more or what he shouldn't be limited in. He accepts that and says, not my will, but yours. So we look to ourselves here. For any of us, any human being, this is true of us. This is the prototype of sin. The seeds of all sin and temptation are right here. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. What is happening here with Adam and Eve is what we are tempted by. Now, it comes from different angles. We don't just hear temptations from the voice of the serpent or from Satan himself. We probably, most of us, don't have those very often because Satan has limited resources. He's not everywhere, always present. Thank God for that. But the world that has been taken over by his agenda continues to perpetuate his lies. And our own hearts that are broken by sin perpetuate those same lies. It's the same battle of words and truth. And it boils down to this. The words of God where he says, you have everything that you need and more versus the words of the serpent or Satan where it says, you deserve it all. Now, I don't want to be mistaken. I don't want to say that on God's side, God is always the one that takes from you or gives you hard things or limits you and doesn't give you anything you desire. And it's only on Satan's side where if it's something you want, that that is always evil. That's, That's not the distinction here. God created everything for our good and he called it very good uh, and even if he only lived with Adam and Eve and in, in, allowed them in his presence that would have been more than enough but he blessed them with everything else and even after this fall we know that God continues to, to, to love blessing his people he is the father of all good gifts and he's given us more than we need. If we had nothing but him, we would have more than we need, but he blesses us with everything else on top of that. Every good thing that we have comes from him. So it's not the distinction of things that are good that we want and we should be okay with having nothing. I want you to tune your hearts as we think about this, how temptation comes our way, to these voices that, that say, You have everything you need and more. And the distinction between that and the the subtle promise of Satan that says you deserve to have it all. You deserve to not be limited, to not be held back. It is wrong for someone, God himself, to say no to you about Something. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy things and and desire good things from God. It's that our desires are too low. If we just want all the best that this world has to offer and have nothing left out, that is too little compared to everything that God offers in himself. It is that subtle voice. and I heard a great sermon, not even about this topic, uh, but from T4G a couple years ago. I want to, to quote Ligon Duncan. He says, when you hear a voice that says you can have all you want, you can be assured that that voice comes with a hiss. That is the voice of the serpent that says you should have nothing held back from you. But on the other side, when you see a, hear a voice that says you see that treasure the thing that you want more than anything else in the world, there's a voice that says, you can't have that, at least not right now, but I'll give you me instead. We can be assured that where that voice comes from, it's our God. It's just like our God. We've seen him before. He he holds back things that we don't need because he gives us himself instead. It's a subtle voice from Satan that says, did God really say, could he really say no to you? Our world isn't saying it in those words, but it's asking that question all over the place. Did God really say that you can't just choose to be whoever you want to be? Did God really say that you have to be the gender assigned at birth? Does God really say that you can only love a certain person? You can only sleep with a certain person? Does God really hold that back from you? Be careful to the words that say you can have it all. That say that you could sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. That says that you can love both God and money. That you can live for earthly success and keep God happy at the same time. That you can spend and spend with no consequences. Or you can say whatever you want and get your way. You can use your uh, authority as a husband or as a parent or an adult to make life easier for you. Even if it's not the nicest way to say it, you can still get away with it. Be careful of the voice that says that you don't have to accept a no from someone in authority, whether it's your parent or teacher or government. Don't listen to the serpent. Our right response should be that we have been blessed with way more than we need, that we have been blessed with way more than we deserve. Where God says no, it is for our good, And even if we have nothing else, we have God. Unfortunately, that's not what we read here in Genesis chapter 3. And it wouldn't have been different if I were there instead of Adam or any of you. We would still see this disaster of sin entering the world. Let's keep reading and let's see how this disaster takes full bloom in our world. We see life being forever altered here. We know this, we feel this, we see it all over the world. At a basic level, we should lament this. We should, at the same time, we're living in it be saddened and dissatisfied by the fact that this is how the world is right now. There's a curse that God lays on the world explicitly stating what is gonna change from 14 on down to to 19. Um, God, first of all, seeks out all the characters here. He talks to Adam first, because Adam was the highest authority of created beings, and then he speaks to Eve, and then he speaks to the serpent. They should have been over the serpent, but they were not. But then he re- responds in reverse, in cursing, he curses the serpent first, and then Eve, and then Adam. There are some uh, other details, though, here, and there's a, a lot process about this curse. I want to compare it though with what I I shared with you two weeks ago in talking about what original life was supposed to be, what created life was. And then we're going to see how is this all changed now. A couple weeks ago we said original created life, God's good life for humans was God dwelling with man who worships and obeys him, who stewards the earth. And then I added a, a summary towards the end that there was this direction involved. All of that was supposed to be towards a certain direction, a purpose, that it wasn't supposed to be like that forever. There was uh, an unfinishedness to Adam's role and Adam and Eve's role and creation itself. They're supposed to subdue the earth and finish the work of, of taking God's perfect creation all over the earth. And, and even as it relates to their relationship with God, that there was a potential confirmation that if they did that and they obeyed, then they would be affirmed in their innocence and even righteousness. And they would... Uh, Enter this potential future state of being living with God in all of eternity and being clothed with righteousness. There is that direction and then that intent and purpose. So those four things are now at stake and on the chopping block because of sin here. Let's look at each of these. <clears throat> God dwelling with man, we read here in verse 7. where the perfect creation was supposed to be God dwelling with man. now, first of all, we see Adam and Eve hiding from God who was supposed to be dwelling with him. The separation of God dwelling with man started with Adam and Eve. They fled from God's presence. It was not, first of all, an act of God's judgment, but man choosing to step away from God's presence in rebellion and then in shame and guilt. Then we see God reinforcing that later in this chapter down in verse 23. God sent them out of the garden. There's this expulsion. He removes them from the place where he was to dwell with them. He sends them out of Eden. But even more significantly, we have this idea of death. Death is this ultimate picture of God dwelling with man being over. It's Not physical death. This is maybe what they thought was coming when God said, if you of that sin on the day you eat of it you will surely die they may have thought physical death but that's not what happens here there is this spiritual death this separation from the god they were supposed to dwell with and it is it cannot be more complete and and devastating they are sent away and the door is shut it is locked from the inside there is no way for adam and eve any of the rest of mankind to approach god again Physical death would come, it would be the painful side effect, but the separation from God is, is the, it is the worst, and it passes to all men. We read in Romans 5, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. There is this gulf now between God and men. We're supposed to dwell together, and there is now nothing that man can do to bridge that gulf. And so while we're living, we are dead. This is what Kevin read about in Ephesians 2 just a few minutes ago, that we were dead in our sins. Even while we're alive, we are living in death. It's the worst type of zombie horror story that we are living dead with nothing to bring ourselves back to God. In place of worshiping and obeying, we now have self-worship. We have outright rebellion and conflict. Instead of worshiping God and obeying, sin is saying, not your will, but mine be done. Saying, like the serpent, I will be like the Most High. And this brings about the worst kind of evil. Matt will be t- t- talking about next week from Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not worship and obedience Self-worship, rebellion, evil. To make ourselves like the Most High is, is cosmic treason. It is saying, you are not my God, I will be God instead of you. Treason is us saying, I'm going to live for my kingdom. And that immediately plays out in the human relationships. If one human is living for their own kingdom, there's conflict between the other person who's living for their own kingdom. We see that right away with Adam and Eve. They're playing the blame game. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is carried out later in in the curse that God explicitly states to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. And pain shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the the parent-mother, the mother-child relationship is now fraught with pain. And this husband and wife relationship, to be one flesh, is now full of conflict. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you, not in good ways. And where man was supposed to be a steward, we now see man having to do Hard work, man who is full of pain, and then there is enmity. There is still the image of God here. Let's not forget that. Remember, we can still see some of the created order that is passing on through the, the fall here. Man is still in the image of God, still has dominion, is still supposed to work and keep the earth. But it will be hard work, and the work will never be done. We read in verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The created world is cursed. It is corrupted It has turned on itself the thorns and the thistles i don't think we're supposed to see those as like new things that god creates to be mean it's just whatever was created is now turned on itself like adam and eve are now turned on each other the created things that adam and eve were supposed to subdue are now turned back on them and it's harder and it's painful there's pain in birth And then there's this enmity that's described between the serpent and the woman and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Verse 14, he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want to explain a little bit more what that means. But there is going to be this pursuit of the serpent against the seed of the woman. Violence and destruction will follow the seed of the woman throughout the rest of human history. And that doesn't specifically account for every type of violence, but it definitely sets the tone for the broken world that we live in, where there is violence and death everywhere. Now this last thing here, that we were created, Adam and Eve, were set to work towards a confirmation, towards a direction. Again, they were supposed to subdue the earth. They are supposed to bring it to completion. And if they had done that without eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have been confirmed in their innocence and righteousness, and they would have been rewarded with eating of the tree of life and clothed in righteousness. But instead, we now see there is no rest Their work will never be completed. They will not be confirmed in their innocence. In place of that, they they do not have righteousness, but they now feel guilt and shame. And those are two different things. They are objectively guilty, and they feel shame because of it. And because of that, they try to clothe themselves. They were hoping to be clothed in righteousness from their God, but now they try to clothe themselves with plants. And then there will be physical death that comes. There will be, the only end to their work will be being returned to the ground that they are working. They are dust, and to dust they will return. And they are, unfortunately, rather than being confirmed in righteousness and innocence, they are now to a degree confirmed in knowing good and evil. We read in verse 22 Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That was something Satan had promised them, right? They would become like God. But it's alike and it's also different. The word there for becoming like us is still something that is separate, something that has gone out from us, another distinction that is being made here in Genesis. And Adam and Eve have become like God, knowing good and evil, but in the worst way. It's like the difference between a a cancer doctor who knows his patient is ill and the patient being told that and coming to the realization that he has a terminal illness. The cancer doctor knows the life and death situation of cancer, but the patient, and Adam and Eve, and all of us, now that we know good and evil, we understand that we are in a terminal situation with sin. So we are like God in knowing good and evil, but it is something where we are set in this condition of knowing good and evil. And it's a danger. That's why Jesus, or why God speaks of casting Adam and Eve out of the garden before they get ultimately confirmed in that state by eating of the tree of light, tree of life. This is the world that we live in. This is the the broken world that we lament, uh, that, that we specifically are lamenting this week because of physical death and other manifestations of the fall, disease that is visiting us and in keeping us from meeting together. This is the result of the, the curse and the fall. And there's no worse news than what is being described here. I guess we could say there's worse news because eternal judgment is not really in picture here in Genesis chapter three. Hell and, and the condemnation of the, the lake of fire is not described here. But if we add everything up that we've been talking about, that's that's the conclusion, that we are separated from God, eternally separated. There's no way for man to come back. There will be physical death that leaves us in that final position of being separated from God, in rebellion, in contradiction to God, in conflict with God. All of these things, this is the sum, the sum of all these things is worse than the sum of its parts, all these things added together totals what we call hell and eternal judgment. And it is bad news. Thankfully, it won't stay this way forever. I hope you know already some of the seeds of hope that are embedded even in this sad, sad story. If you don't, please stay tuned. The seeds of hope even in this passage, point us to someone who will ultimately slay the serpent, who will defeat what Satan has done here. There are a few different things that we see that point to this hope. First of all, there is God's patience on display. As I already mentioned, God had promised Adam and Eve that the day they ate the fruit, they would surely die. And one of his created beings defying him outright and disobeying the holy living God could have perfectly, justly resulted in Adam and Eve dropping dead that very instant. But God did not allow that to happen. He is patient, He left them alive to give them an opportunity to to hear more from Him, to respond to His mercy and grace. And we see that as he continues to seek them out and ask them questions. We read in verse nine, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, he told, God said who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows the answers to these questions. He, he knew where Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden. But he asks them questions. He's trying to draw them out and give them an opportunity to turn to him. Sadly, they, they don't right away. He continues to offer grace and patience to them. And even the expulsion from the garden was itself an act of God's patience. He did not want them to reach out and grab the tree, the fruit of the tree of life, and live forever. Verse 22 lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever, therefore God sent him out of the garden. I think we're to understand that if Adam and Eve had taken of that tree of life, they would have been permanently sentenced to death. Like the created beings, the angels had one choice and they had to live with that for all of eternity. But God takes that away from them, removes that from them so that there is still An opportunity for him to work out the rest of his plan to fix this, to to save them, is God's patience. So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God's patience is hope for us. And there's a specific promise that God gives. It's what we call the proto evangelium, it's the first mention of the evangelium, the gospel. In verse 15, he shall bruise your head, he says this to the serpent, and he shall bru- you shall bruise his heel. There's a picture of this from one of my favorite artists, and my kids love this too, so this is mainly for them to see. But this is a picture of God already knowing from the beginning of time how he was going to fix this. Satan would be, continue to attack the seed of the woman, up until the time that the seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. At the moment that he thought he was winning, when he had Jesus on the cross, God Himself dying at the hands of created men, bruising the heel of Jesus, God had already planned that that would be the time where it would be fixing the very thing that Satan started here. He would actually be crushing the head. Of the serpent, and that is why Jesus came in person to earth. First John three eight, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. That is, there's so much bound up in this promise. Very little of it is pictured here in just these words. The rest of the book describes how this comes about and what that means for all of us. It's acted out in a few different ways throughout the story. I don't know if you have caught this as you've you've read the Old Testament, but Egypt is pictured at different times as a serpent and as a dragon. Pharaoh wore a headdress with a serpent on his forehead, on his head. And when he first engages in a battle with Moses, they battle over the staffs and serpents. But God crushes Egypt. He crushes his enemy that is raised against him. Other enemies of God are pictured at different times as serpents and dragons. And we read of them being crushed, even specifically being crushed in the head. Jael crushes the head of the general of the Canaanites. David strikes the head of Goliath, who is described as being in scaly armor. Jesus calls out his enemies, the Pharisees, as a brood of vipers. They are the son of their father, Satan. This is a picture of the hero, the real hero, the second Adam, who comes in and actually slays the dragon and saves the damsel, and not just Eve, but all of her children who will respond to him in faith. He is our hero who will slay the dragon There's another picture of what that looks like here. There's covering for sin. We read in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. They had attempted to clothe themselves, maybe in righteousness with plants, to, to cover their sin and guilt. But God said that wasn't good. There was nothing that man could do to bring about his own covering and righteousness. So he made clothing for them and it caused the death of an animal, probably of a lamb, and that lamb is pictured throughout the rest of the story, a lamb that must be sacrificed to cover sin, and it's pictured later in Genesis, one lamb for a man that was replacement for Isaac, traded out for a ram. In Exodus, we read that the lamb was sacrificed for a whole family, and we read that in, in the law that there was one lamb that was sacrificed, his blood covered the, the whole nation's sin once a year. But that only covered it. Then we get to John chapter 1, and John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Not just one Lamb who covers sin temporarily, but who will take away the sin of the world. And that is pictured here, the covering of Adam and Eve's sin and nakedness with the clothes of the garments of skins. And there are other pictures that are played out here, that the clothing, uh, that the tree that continues to show up throughout Scripture, the tree that was the source of sin, the tree that is where Jesus is crucified in the New Testament, the tree that is ultimately resolved and redeemed in the new creation. There will be a tree of life before the throne of God. The theme of eating, Adam and Eve took took and ate in sin. But there is good news. I, would, I wish we were able to have communion today. I wish we were able to be here. And I, I lament that we cannot gather and taste of communion because where Adam and Eve took and ate and brought sin to us, Jesus offers us take and eat. This is my body. And those are words of salvation to us. Words of hope that he is offering his own body to accomplish and undo what Satan did and what Adam and Eve allowed to come into our world. And that is ultimately pictured again in the end of time, the marriage supper of the lamb, the feast that we will all eat together and the new heavens and the new earth. We see just a little picture here of Adam's Adam's expression of faith in response to what God is saying here. In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, she hadn't been named up to that point, but as she is called Eve because she was the mother of all living. Even though there would be pain in childbirth and they knew death was coming, he still believed that out of his wife, the woman, God's promise would be to bring life. She was going to be the mother of all living, all life. But lastly here, I want to point to hope. Even in the worst of the story here, there is still hope because God continues to pursue man. The rest of the story of the Bible is not that man seeks after God. We have already addressed that man could do nothing to try to get back to God, to open that door that was shut, that keeps him from fellowship with God. But we're also told that man never tried. None seek after God. In our sin, we have only sought to flee from God in our sin. Man is not seeking after God, but God is seeking after man. And that is what the rest of this Bible, what the story of the gospel is about. And we see that played out here. Where Eden is now gone as a place of dwelling between God and man, God continues to pursue that. He offers to to call out his people, Israel, and, and to come and dwell with them in the tabernacle, in the temple. And there are imitations of Eden built into that, that the clothing of the priests, the signs of trees and sacrifices of the lamb are built into the tabernacle and the temple, and God offers to dwell with his people. Again, they sin and that doesn't last. So God then comes to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus, the incarnation Jesus comes as a lamb and as a priest, and he comes clothed in our flesh. And then when he is resurrected and ascended to heaven, then we are given the promise of the indwelling, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. Those of us who are washed clean by the blood of the lamb or clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God dwells in us. But that is just the first fruits of what will ultimately come In the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which will be the final resting place of God dwelling with man. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, "...Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not the temple and the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God is going to continue to pursue humans so that he can dwell with them and return to what was created life, God dwelling with man. And I think even better than created life, even better than what Eden offered, he offers us coming at the end of all time. And he offers that first taste of that now, the first fruits now. So believer, God is continuing to pursue you. He offers a taste of that dwelling with him now, drawing you to himself in the temple of your own heart. He wants to dwell in you and manifest Christ in you. But unbeliever, if you don't know of this, if you only know of your sin and not the promise that God has come to fix it, God is pursuing you. Even if you are, if you are at all seeking God, it is because God has already started to seek you. And he offers the promise and the hope any of those who turn away from sin, the sin that caused this in the first place, the sin of living as if you are your own God. If you turn from that, repent of your sin, put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, who offered his own body in place of yours on the cross to defeat the works of Satan. You will taste of the hope that is pictured here. Let's pray. We thank you for the hope of the gospel, even in the saddest of stories, the worst thing that could happen in the world, thank you that you are still promising and offering hope. I pray that that would be an offer of hope to someone who's never heard of it, never tasted it before. And for those of us who know that already, that we would continue to be humbled and grateful, and we would continue to Listen to our God's voice and not to the voice of the serpent. Praise things in Jesus' name, amen.